watched a movie last night Yeah, I've never seen this one before Yes, I swear it's brand new And I'm sharing it with you I watched a movie last night And now I'm sharing it with you January 29th, 1964, with a Metacritic of 97. Jeremy, we just watched Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Do you think with a shorter title it would have gotten up to 100? Uh, I assume that's the only thing they could have docked from this movie. <laughs> that's that's the only imperfection is too long a title. Too, ma- too many notes. Just so many. It's just too many syllables, lots of words. But if it was just Dr. Strangelove, this is probably 100. Actually, my favorite thing about this long title is anywhere you see it in a streaming platform, like it's always truncated because like nobody over at Netflix or Prime or whatever has like the, I don't know, 83 character (laughs) title. You know, it's like uh, moving up to Y2K. Like, sorry, we just we didn't have the bandwidth back. We didn't have the memory (laughs) for it. Well, this was a great rewatch. When was the last time you, you we you had seen this in your Ute? I had seen this as a Ute, but I had not seen it in a very, very long time. And I had watched it, I think I had mentioned when we watched it, that the only time I had seen this was once, and it was for like a cinema as literature class or something with, shout out, Mr. Penna, he's the man. Uh, great class. But like, that's the last time I saw it, and I had not seen it since. Funny enough, I saw it in what I believe was called American Film History by Mr. Oh, something with a B. He was a very, very popular teacher because, you know, you got to go to his class and watch movies. Right. But he also, like, <laughs> that's when I saw, like, this and The Graduate and American Graffiti and all of those kind of, you know, 60s, 70s cinematic-defining movies. Yeah. Haven't seen it since. You also had not seen this since? I have not. I had not seen this movie, and, and my guess is 31 years was the best guess I could make. Wow. So yeah, mine would have been probably in the 20 year range uh, for similar reasons. So yeah. Okay. I, for some reason, I thought you had seen it more recently than that. That makes this even more fun, I think. Yeah. Now, before we get into the five questions, uh, just sort of a, a, a general thought. Upon rewatch, what I noticed the most was my memory was this is all like a Peter Sellers joint, right? Like he's all over the movie, <laughs> you know. I don't think they said that back then. Uh, he's all over the movie. What I didn't realize is he kind of is, kind of isn't. And George C. Scott, to me, was kind of the, the primary uh, lead of the film. Yeah, if you go screen time to screen time, it is an easy three-quarter, one-quarter Scott to Sellers. I would I would. Right. Be. But what's weird, or not weird, I don't know. Uh, Sellers got the nom for best actor that year. And uh, George e. Scott's nowhere even wasn't best supporting, wasn't best anything. It was up for four Academy Awards, like the big four, didn't win a single one, which I had no idea. I, yeah, it's one of those movies you just assume like swept all the stuff and like did all the amazing things. And uh, it did not actually. Did it get it beat won- out by something like wild though? Like, is that why it didn't win? Well, for 1965, which I'm just pulling up real fast, best actor was Rex Harrison, My Fair Lady. Okay. Uh, so that's that's a pretty good pick. 
uh, best supporting actors, Peter Ustinov, who I love, but then uh, Topkapi, which I've never seen. Nope. Julie Andrews won for Mary, Mary Poppins. Oh, your favorite movie of all time. One of them. One of them. <laughs> uh, George Cukor won for My, My Fair Lady over uh, Kubrick. And best uh, best picture, let's see, drumroll please, My Fair Lady. But listen to this list. Oh my goodness, no wonder. My Fair Lady, Dr. Strangelove, Zorba the Greek, Beckett, and Mary Poppins. Yeah. That's an intense, that's a top five right there. Right. Yeah, for real. This That's why I asked, because I was like, is this one of those things where it's like you just opened against the Titanic, so you had no shot, versus you got snubbed? Like, I don't know if this is a snub. If any of those other movies won, I would have been like, those are pretty good movies. <laughs> right, right. Now, by the way, one last fun, like, again, I tried to keep the trivia pretty low today, but Peter Sellers, do you know how much he was paid for his role? No idea. Million dollars, which was 55% of the film's entire budget. First of all, that's hysterical. It's even funnier considering the fact that he wasn't on screen that much. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Kubrick's quote about it is, I, uh, I got three for the price of six. Okay. he's got the three roles and yeah, a yeah, million yeah. bucks would have been six actors. It just shows you Peter Sellers' true star power at the time. For me, you know, he was, he was the guy in all these movies my dad showed me because we watched the Pink Panther series and all those, uh, those movies which by the way, my personal highlights, the part, the party we'll talk about. We'll definitely, we'll definitely have a, the party moment. Cause I love that film. But now as an adult, going back to some of this content, like what a career. Yeah. I mean, absolutely crazy. He was, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like to me, like he's not, I know him because I love movies and film, but he's the Pink Panther. Like, I think for most people my age who know who he is, he's the Pink Panther. If he's anything, there's some people my age who think Steve Martin is the Pink Panther. Let that sink in. Well, those people we won't have to talk to when they're not <laughs> listening to this podcast, because why would they? Um, so, uh, JT, of our five questions today, exactly one is like a legit serious question and all the rest are not. Which order, where would you like this, the, 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 in the middle, at the end, kick us off? Give me. Yeah, let's, let's just get, let's be silly the rest of the podcast. Let's get the real one out of the way. Okay. And it's not that heavy either. Because, <laughs> you know, it's a lo-fi top five. How serious are we going to get? JT, is this movie a comedy? Oh, good question. Yes, question mark? Um, no, more seriously, the answer is yes. This is a comedy. Uh, it's not just a comedy, though. That's that's the only way that I could say it. It is a comedy. It has all the elements of a comedy, uh, there's a couple performances that are clearly comedic. Everything is so over the top. Um, but I think being a comedy doesn't mean that you can't have subtext and you can't make a point and a statement. See everything Dave Chappelle's ever done. <laughs> See Lenny Bruce. Uh, so I would say that this is a comedy, but uh, one that does not, it's not devoid of meeting. I think that's fair. It's, it's obviously it's high satire. Uh, I'm, I'm mixed on it. I'm mixed on it. For me, anytime you describe something where it's a comedy and another thing, I tend to believe it's the other thing first and that the comedy is sort of secondary. Here, I started to realize while watching it that so much of the comedy and what makes this movie so good as a comedy is its subtlety, right? Like the, the famous line, uh, no fighting in here, it's the war room. Right. 
I didn't remember. I have always known that quote because, you know, I'm a movie geek, but I didn't remember until this watching that it's delivered not only deadpan, but just just as if it's like, well, how's the weather today? Right. Right. This is the war room. No fighting. Like it's not there's there's no delivery. It's deadpan in every way. And that made me appreciate all the rest of the movie even more, because then I started to recognize everything was doing that high satire without any setup. It was just like, joke, you may well miss it. We're going to be okay with that. Right. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think for me, the art of really good comedy often is that, because I think the thing is that comedy like is slapstick. I think people think that it needs to be overtly comedic, and that doesn't necessarily track with what comedy is, right? Like there's a lot of comedy that's makes you think and it's thought provoking and like, you know, a lot of stuff Carlin used to do, like the stuff he's most famous for is a little bit more abrasive and forward, forward comedic, but also there's a lot of like subtext in the stuff he does. And it's when he was being quiet or like little lines that he would drop that I always thought were the funniest, which is why I, I would put this in the comedy realm um, that happened to be doing other stuff. But like, I don't think it's a drama. I don't think it's a straight satire. Like I think it's, it's a comedy that, heavy it's like heavy it's covering some heavy heavy stuff um but at no point do i think it ever goes into another like genre more so than it ever left being a comedy that's how i would put it that's well said i I felt especially the last maybe 15 minute sequence the way the and i was reading about it but i won't geek out too far but the way the composer did the uh when johnny comes marching home uh music and and the the way the, that they arranged it with a heavy drum emphasis and like the pacing, the, the pacing of the, of the tune was done to make it more intense. Actually, they, mm. they did all this work. So for me, those last like 15 minutes, I remember watching like really tense. Cause to be honest, I couldn't remember how it ended. I knew the obviously right. slim Pickens on the bomb scene. Cause it's so iconic, but I didn't recall, do they blow up the entire world or do <laughs> they not blow up the entire world? Right. And you know, that, adds to a little heaviness of a movie. Uh, It most certainly does. So to that end, JT, our next question. I have for you five movies in which your protagonist at the end of the movie, oh, this is like spoiler central. Sorry, everybody. So uh, I'm going to name five movies. Well, they're pretty well-known movies. I'm just going to go with it. So, you know, there's a potential for a spoiler here, people. <laughs> In these five movies, the ending is dark. So much so that your characters are either watching their own imminent demise or everybody's imminent demise. Okay. It is your job to rank these five movies. Got it. I'm ready. You have Dr. Strangelove. Yep. You have uh, Terminator 3. The Rise of the Machines. Rise of the Machines, got it. Which is still like eight words less than Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> but not to be alone in a long title, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. Never seen it. And then say, okay, Rogue One. Oh, saw that one. Oh, I guess technically that's Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Right. And Fight Club. Ooh. Okay, so I can rank four of them. Fair enough. I'm, rank, I'm ranking them on the severity of how dark. It oh, got. you get to rank them however you want. I just put the the common theme here is movies in which characters, you know, basically are about to die at the end on screen. All right, so I'll go 
from bottom to top. So T3 would be my number four. I would argue T3 and Rogue One are pretty close to me. Um, oh, yeah? Yeah, I think so. Uh, because I could, I could make an argument for either one of them. They're kind of like a four A, like three A and three B. I don't know that I have a strong opinion on either one of those, but they're definitely below the next two. I think, I think, I yeah, see it's tough. I, I wish I had seen Dr. Strangelove more. Like I'd like to watch it again, but right now it would go Strangelove and then Fight Club. Got it. Okay. Fair enough. I think, uh, I think it's a fair ordering. I think, you know, if we'd probably seen them many more times, I don't know that it would be possible to pull Dr. Strange Love above Fight Club for our for either of our generation. I think that's just Fight Club was too much of a movie. It's too important. And and like it it that's one of those movies that changed the way I watched other movies. Like it, you know, I'm listen, I'm sure that people who watch Dr. Strange Love feel that way about Dr. Strangelove. But like having voluntarily watched Fight Club first and then being told to watch Dr. Strange Love a lot by people the rest of my life. Fight Club, I'm never going to be able to pull it above Fight Club. I'm just not. Yeah, I think that's fair. But I do have some issues with you saying that Rogue One and T3 are like near to me. I think T3 is kind of meh and Rogue One's pretty darn good. You, you were, Are you not a Rogue One fan? It's not that I'm not a Rogue One fan it is, as much as, I don't know, T3. So we've talked about this before. T3 is one of those movies I've not rewatched in a long time intentionally. Well, yeah. The age JT that saw that loved it. And I know that today JT would probably be like, yeah. So I just haven't gone back. So I I hold that movie in much higher regard. I saw Rogue One as a like formed person. So Mm. I like it. Like in the pantheon of all the Star Wars stuff, I think of the recent stuff they've done. It's well above some others. Uh, But I also, in my brain, T3 is still a pretty good movie. (laughs) Uh, it's very funny you say that. I want to, do you, do you remember what year T3 came out or how old you might've been? I, I was definitely sub 15. 2003. <laughs> how old are you? 2003. I was about, so well, it's, well, no. Okay. So I was a little bit older. I was 18. 18. So it's interesting because T2 came out when I was 18. Okay. So there you go. With it exact, I guess, I guess there's a difference except T2 is universally known as a good movie and and then there's T3. Right. Which again, I'm sure, you know, I, I saw and went, this is great. And I'm sure if I watched it today, I'd be like, this is probably not that great. <laughs> probably. Okay. So coming up next, by the way, another fun bit of knowledge. You know, the actor, I think we both like Campbell Scott. Yeah. Did you know that that is George C. Scott's son? Sure didn't. <laughs> Do you know what the C in George C. Scott stands for? I'm a guest Campbell. You got it. <laughs> I had no idea. That's actually a lot of fun. Same. I would never even thought of it, you know, but then when you hear it and you just sort of think about the eyes for a second and like Campbell Scott's ability to go wide eyed and stuff. Oh yeah. All right. Oh, that's, that's cool. I love finding out people are related. That's like a fun thing to do in life. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Although Campbell Scott's like actually a pretty good actor, you know, yeah. not the, not the typical Hollywood nepotism thing. He seems pretty good. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Now that we're talking about actors, yes. our go-to question, and we're going to it. And until I'm you ready. tell me I can't ask this question every week, I'm asking this question every week. I love this question. JT, please pick one of the following and place them somewhere in this movie. Your options include Billy Zane, yeah. Baby Quaid, 
Yep. Discount Johnny Depp. <laughs> yep. Solo Nicole. Yep. Or fully Max Cage. Uh, okay. So let's eliminate people. There's literally not a role for Solo Nicole other than George C. Scott's girlfriend. <laughs> like there's just, there isn't a role. Correct. And she would never take such a small part. Although maybe at the beginning of her career, she might've taken a role like that. Cause it would have been pretty awesome. Yeah. Pre dead calm. Maybe she's got, right. a, maybe there's a window and you can grab her. Uh, I don't think discount Johnny Depp works in this. Uh, he could have like a bit part maybe, but I think he doesn't fit any of the major roles. He's too young. Um, and he's too young. Even even now, he's too young. <laughs> uh, let's see. I don't like Baby Quaid in anything this because I don't think he can be funny, but I don't think he could be funny the way this role required you to be funny. So I'm left with either Max Cage or Billy Zane. Billy Zane as the general, I think could have been very interesting. Sterling Hayden's part or George C. Scott's part because I think they're both generals. They are both generals. I, I would have gone with, so Jack Ripper, that was Sterling Hayden, right? Okay, okay. Yeah, so I think Zane in that role could have been very, very interesting. It's either that or, I mean, just a, a Max Cage as Dr. Strangelove. I don't know that I can pass that up. <laughs> I don't know either. The problem is I don't, I, I don't, I could have seen like normal Nick Cage pulling off the three-part role Fully Max Cage to me could only possibly do one role, and that would be Slim Pickens' role. Yeah, so Slim Pickens would have worked. There's actually, so that's true. He would have been really good at that. The thing is, if I could divorce, so again, is he replacing a role or the or the actual actor? Because as a role, just giving Max Cage Strange Love alone, actually, no, you know what? Now that I'm thinking about this, there's subtlety in the humor of Strange Love, and that wouldn't work. Because there's no way that he could have played the other two roles that Sellers played. He couldn't do President and the other Captain guy. That wouldn't right. have worked. But as right. Strange Love, specifically the last like ten minutes of Strange Love, is got Max Cage written all over it, like Agreed. all over it. Uh, but Slim Pickens would have been good. You know what? For all of this, uh, I'm going to wind up with Billy Zane as Jack Ripper because I think he would have nailed it. Fair enough. Okay, I could see that. I could also actually actually see maybe. Maybe Billy Zane in George C. Scott's role as well. I maybe, maybe, maybe a slightly old. I mean, he'd have to be a little older, of course, but he does have the suaveness to do it. I don't know if he also has the comedic timing to do it. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, the the reason I didn't go with with Scott's role is I don't know that he has like the he has like the the crazy like that's a thing that he can do, but I don't think he has the like the disassociated unhinged which is what scott i think really pulled off in that role was like some of the stuff he was saying you were just like what in god's day what like just a full what I, like yeah. zane feels he looks too calculated <laughs> like, the, the scene where georgie scott is first presenting to the war room what has happened yeah and he's just sort of it's it's like I think about it like you're it's like being in some random boardroom and someone's gonna come in and everybody's waiting to give their updates around the table and yeah. then someone's like oh yeah so yeah they're you know we launched uh maybe launched a nuclear weapon maybe like yeah. it's so well done so here's the only thing I actually want to say that's the one part of the movie that bothers me to no end because that's a wide shot. Like there's a bunch of wide shots in that, which means there are other people in frame. 
And the complete lack of acknowledgement of what this guy is saying, even on the facial expressions of these people, I understand why it was a choice that was made, but it genuinely bummed me out the whole time. I'm like, this dude is saying something genuinely crazy. And everyone was just like, I'll pack my pipe again and treat this like it's a Tuesday morning. It really like, that's the one part that didn't track to me. I'm like, you could have leaned into at least have people like put their elbows on the table and get wide eyed and be like, what did he just say? Nobody reacted at all. But I think that's the point. Like I know, same, I know, I know. You just didn't like it. I got it. I I got it. No, like I, it. <laughs> no, I actually liked it very much. It's, it's, it's so funny how we pull different things out of movies. For me, it was, it was the perfect way to compliment him delivering it as if it's just a random update on a random Tuesday or whatever was going on. Yeah. I stand behind the choice. I don't actually know that I would have done it differently, but I just no, don't I, like it. <laughs> I hear you. There's, there's lots of times for that where you, where, yeah, same, you don't like a thing, but you respect that was the right way to do the thing. Right. Agreed. Exactly. So JC, I'm going to put you on the spot with the next, the next two are, are JT on the spot. I'm just letting you know. Great, I'm going to fail them both miserably. <laughs> no, you're not. You're going to handle this great. JD, I'm going to name for you five movies. Okay. You're going to tell me what they have in common. Oh, I love these. All right, go ahead. It might be easy. It might, I don't know. I don't know. This could be done. We could be done with this in five seconds, or you might, you know, we might need some clues. So obviously, Doctor Strangelove. Yep. Back to the Future Part Two. Okay. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh boy. <laughs> Austin Powers Gold Member. Okay. And Cloud Atlas. Movies where people play multiple characters. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Honestly, nice if if you didn't have Austin Powers in there, I probably would have I would have like it would have taken me a while longer to get that. But Austin Powers is just such a, oh yeah, he's like nine people in that movie. <laughs> I also was going to use Coming to America, uh, and then it was getting a little comedy heavy, and I, so I went back with the Cloud Atlas. And... Yeah, so Coming to America probably would have been better for me, only in the sense that I wouldn't have made the distinction as quickly, because the characters aren't as prominent, right? It's like Eddie mm. Murphy plays, it's like, a that's a side part of that movie, it's not a main theme. Uh, but that's it. It's very good. That's uh, yeah. I'm very happy I got it right because I was pretty sure I was going to fail whatever you were about to do. <laughs> oh, you would never fail at it. But this one's going to be a little trickier. Great. <laughs> All right. And it requires a little reading, uh, but there is no math involved. I was told there would be no math. Okay, great. In 1995, Stanley Kubrick enlisted a man named Terry Southern uh, to script a sequel. Terry, by the way, Terry Southern co-wrote the original with him. To script a sequel titled Son of Strangelove. Okay. Kubrick planned to have Terry Gilliam from Monty Python uh, direct. The script was never completed, but there were index cards laying out the story's basic structure found among Southern's papers. JT, tell me what's on five of those index cards. What's on five of those index cards? In other words... Lay out for us any five major plot points in Son of Strangelove. Oh, oh, this is fun. I get to story tell. Okay. So Son of Strangelove. So wait, am I supposed to assume that like this this son of Strangelove was born 
underneath the earth in like a weird cave situation <laughs> where there was well funny funny you should ask because i do have an answer i do have a very limited amount of information to supply you that was one of the two things uh it was set largely in an underground bunker where dr yep. strangelove had taken refuge with a group of women okay so we know that if there's one dr strangelove there's at least four women so we can do a little bit of casting there because that i think was the rule he said <laughs> that there needed oh to he be. said 10 he said oh, 10. 10 in the movie. Yeah. Okay, so it's him and a gaggle of women. All right, so there is a community-raised boy who is the son of Strange Love, who clearly is uh, some sort of like mastermind scientist. That's going to be a plot point for sure. Okay. Uh, do you know, is he old? When are we finding him? Are we watching him grow all the way up? Or are we finding him as a fully matured young man? It was not stated, but it was 1995 that Kubrick had started outlining the sequel. So one would okay. presume it was 30 years later. Okay, so he's like a person. He's a full-blown person. All right, so this full-blown person, uh, I'm going to say that this is an escape from the bunker. That's the big plot point. I think he's trying to get out of said bunker. So he has okay. been surrounded by the same people his whole life. Uh, there's probably some really weird Oedipus complex stuff happening because he's just surrounded by like moms and there's no, probably maybe there's sisters, but let's not go that route. So plot points. One, he's trying to get out. Two, he's a mad scientist. Three, uh, let's see, what would be another thing that feels Kubricky though? I feel like there's got to be like a world domination ploy where like he wants to get out to like, oh, that's it. So not world domination, world creation. He wants to go out and create the world. So okay. that's what's driving him out of the bunker. So drive, get out of the bunker, get away from crazy maternal parent stuff, go build a new world. I'm a crazy scientist. And the fifth thing would be he gets out to find out that the world has already long been created and that it has like advanced all of his amazing scientific stuff that he had done. And so it winds up being a coming of age. <laughs> nice. Nice. I was curious if you're going to do coming of age, maybe fish out of water, a little Kimmy Schmidt in there. Yeah. 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 I like it. Yeah. I, like I think it. I can, uh, you can kind of fuse two of them together because if he gets out, right. So he's created this whole world. He's the smartest person in the world. The whole world revolved around him. He then emerges to go like create the world that he's always envisioned to find out that the world already exists and it's better than what he was thinking, but without him in it. So he has to both come to terms with that and also figure out how to live in a world that already exists. And it's just going to actually be fun. It's not too bad. By the way, the other, the only other thing I had was that there's a quote from Terry Gilliam. Uh, I was told after Kubrick died by someone who had been dealing with him that he had been interested in trying to do a strange love with me directing, but I never knew that until after he died. I would have loved to. Oh. And if anybody, by the way, if any current era director I could pick, you know, maybe Finchner, but I think uh, Terry Gilliam would be would would have a blast with us. Yeah, this feels directly in that wheelhouse of being able to to ride that line of is this serious? Is this comedy? When is it satire? When is it commentary? Because satire commentary, I think, is a hard line to rub. So, Jeremy, my only question for you, and then we will wrap this up, is this is a 97 on Metacritic. On a scale of 1 to 10, where do you put this? So if you had to go, I'm trying to think of movies you love. So like Mary Poppins being the peak and Xanadu's being the worst. Where is this? 
Well, let's be clear. I, a Xanadu is like a three. It's not a oh. one. There are far worse movies than Xanadu. That's true. Far, far worse movies that I have seen that are far worse than Xanadu. I mean, a three is unwatchable crap, but you know, it's right. more watchable than a, <laughs> than a straight one. Uh, I, it's funny you ask because I re-rated this in IMDb this week. Uh, I, had, I had left it, I guess, from childhood memory at like a six. But oh, wow. uh, I, I, brought, I brought it up to an eight. It was okay. not a 10. And, and I think and when we were watching this this week, I think I had said this to you out loud is, I'll bet you if I had watched it like five, 10 years ago, where it didn't feel eerily prescient, I might have enjoyed it more. Mm-hmm. Instead, I'm watching that and I'm like, fluoride in the water. Fluoride sort of sounds like some kind of like Pizzagate thing. You know, it just, <laughs> it just felt like, wow, I, you know, I wouldn't have thought people thought that way. It would have been more satirical and funnier to me, but instead watching, I'm like, yeah, what if this, you know, we already have a couple of these folks in Congress. Like what, what if, you know, but the first bit of trivia you'll find in IMDb about this movie is that upon the movie's release, they redid all of the safeguards across all of our armed forces for this kind of a scenario to prevent it from happening. Well, you know what? Then good for Stanley Kubrick. If for nothing else, good for him. <laughs> All right. Uh, as always, Jeremy, this was fun. Uh, guys, if you have anything that you want us to watch, let us know. Drop it in the comments on Twitter. Uh, send us a message. Uh, we are excited to do more of these. And thanks for joining the Lo-Fi Top 5. Now the time has come for leaving. And now we shall return. We were so glad we could make it, but so sad we gotta run. Well, it might be a long time till we raise another glass. You can rest assured that next time we'll have ourselves a laugh. Yeah, we'll have ourselves a laugh.